Craig-Karan. And I'm Veronica McCarthy. And this is Women of Contradictions. Um, how are you doing? It's a weird day in New York because there are these Canadian wildfires that have created this very thick, smoky haze that settled into New York. And while obviously the wildfires are terrible and the air quality is terrible, one percent of me is like, ooh, this is very apocalyptic. <laughs> this makes you a freak. <laughs> that is never my experience with wildfires. Well, because you are what we call a catastrophist. I am. And I always say I will be the first to die in the zombie apocalypse. Do not come looking for me. I am gone because I I don't like anything. I don't like anything apocalyptic. It's probably my the the PTSD from evangelical upbringing, but that is for another episode entirely. Um, and then, then the second coming anyway. Um, yeah, I do not, I don't, I don't have that same reaction as you do. And I definitely walk down like New York city streets today, looking at the red sky being like, where are the four horsemen? Let me see them in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to kick off our three favorite things of the week. Every week, Britt and myself will share Three favorite things from the week, and this can be everything from podcasts to books to articles to consumerism items that we're vaguely, mildly, very obsessed with. A smattering of things. They might be in contradiction to each other, but that makes it all the better. And Britt's going to start us off. Okay, here we go. Uh, my first thing is a skincare product, which I will not feature very often because <laughs> I have the world's most sensitive skin. And I only use a few things that I know will not make my skin break out or inflame it, create a rash, what have you. So I found an exfoliator that actually works on my skin and does not make me break out or do all those things. And it is by Tata Harper. It is called Super Kind Refining Cleanser. And it has just like a very light kind of gritty texture to it. And I've only been using it once a week, maybe every other week, <laughs> like not a lot, but I haven't, it hasn't freaked out. And the her, she has a fairly new line. That's all for people with highly sensitive, highly reactive skin. So if that is you, the price point is not exactly cheap, but I tend to use, actually I use Paula's Choice and things from La Roche-Posay, which have a much more accessible price point on skincare. So I don't feel too bad spending a little more on this that I know is going to last me a long time. And it's delightful. So if you also have sensitive skin, I highly recommend giving this a try and you can get samples. So you don't have to commit to the full, the full thing right away. Love that. I know. So my second thing is a song. And so I heard this song and it had a very fun summer dance vibe. It is, of course, a British artist. And her name is Freya. And I'm not sure if it's Ridings or Riddings, but the song is called Weekends. Funny little story. She is actually a Nepo baby. Her father is the voice of Daddy Pig from Peppa Pig. Okay, that is not a Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> you have two small children, and I just, as a single woman, I'm going to say no to that Nepo baby claim. Although clearly she gets her vocal cords from a good source. <laughs> 
Okay. But the point is, is it doesn't matter who like connections are connections. Your, your father can literally be the voice of daddy pig who among some circles, Veronica is a very big deal. Okay. Does he have like a sexy voice? Like does daddy is like a, is it a zaddy kind of vibe or is it? No, it is not a daddy kind of vibe. Oh, okay. Then I'm not interested. If it's not a zaddy He's like a hapless I mean, he oinks, literally. So. Exactly. Not a Nepo baby. You know who's a Nepo baby? <laughs> Kaya Gerber. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're right. Maybe I'm being unfair to Freya because she has a beautiful voice. She's got this gorgeous mane of red hair that I would like. Oh, my gosh. It's just stunning. So look up the song Weekends. The whole album is really good. She seems like a beautiful young woman, and I very much enjoyed it. Great. Okay, so for my last one. I don't actually feel like this is a favorite thing because I honestly feel depressed about it, but I, I, one, wanted to talk about it with you, and two, the article I read was very gossipy, and you know, I love the gossip. So it was basically, if you are into fashion, you probably know by now that Edward Enenful of British Vogue is stepping down. And he's stepping, they they have him stepping into some role as global something, something or other. Okay, so sources say that basically he had thought that he would be taking on the role of editor-in-chief of American Vogue a lot sooner. And kind of realized after a few years that the odds of that happening were slim to none. Because Anna Wintour, who is the head of American Vogue and also kind of now the head of global sort of Condé, Condé Nast's whole fashion publishing empire. Online. Like yeah. empire. Yeah. Um, I think she is an autocrat. <laughs> I am not a fan of Anna Wintour for like, I don't want to totally dismiss her because I, I don't doubt, I, I don't, I don't discredit her influence in the fashion industry some ways, in some ways positively, but I just, I, I, when you look at British Vogue compared to American Vogue, it is eons ahead of just who they're profiling, what, it, it's everyone. It's it just, it's so inclusive. And I know that word is irksome to certain people, but it, in, inclusivity matters. And I think that Beyond that, it's a fresh take. It's taking, it's relevant. Yeah, it's, it's so relevant. In, things start to get old when you're seeing the same people, the same photographers, the same fashion editors over and over again. He's brought in so many new and exciting voices. And I just, it makes me sad because I feel like, so she, he's not even getting a replacement. She is going to be the editor-in-chief of British Vogue and have some like chief content creator or something like that for British Vogue. But I just feel like it's going to be, it's going to be stale, which is how American Vogue feels. And it feels like a real misstep. You want multiple editors in positions of power because they bring multiple voices, multiple perspective, multiple opinions, and multiple contacts that they put forth and support. And it just brings about diversity. Like, if you have a single person in charge of a mass amount of content, it is going to get homogenous. And that's what Vogue across all of its publications is becoming more and more of because, again, it's one person. That is the that is the exact word that it is. It's homogenous. I feel like you can pick up a Vogue, an American Vogue from today and an American Vogue from 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and it's not going to be that much different. It's not saying anything new. And I felt like British Vogue had been. And I th- I think she was scared. I think she was intimidated by him because he's brilliant. And people, I mean, I, my sources have also said that he can have some diva-like behavior. But I mean, you know, that you expect that. You want that from the, that role. Um, but overall, people in fashion really adored him. And I think it's going to be a great loss. And I just, I feel really bummed about it. Ugh, R.I.P. to the last... He was there for six years, I want to say? Mm-hmm. R.I.P. to the last six years of British Vogue. My first one is normal marital hatred. 
<laughs> We're coming in strong. <laughs> and I know if you've been in any kind of a long-term relationship or a marriage of any sorts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I know you know what I'm talking about <laughs> because the man who coined that term, Terrence Real, he has been preaching about it for the last decades and no one has ever asked, what's that? <laughs> yes. No, I, I think everyone who has been in a long-term relationship knows what that is. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Gay, straight, whatever. You will get to a point in your relationship where you're like, oh, I hate you. I feel hate. <laughs> yeah. Because you did not load the dishwasher the way I think you should load the dishwasher or, you know, put something away or the way in which you butter your toast freaking really irritates me. <laughs> the chewing of your food. Dear God, kill yeah. me now. Uh, anyway. He has come out with a new book. He's actually Bruce Springsteen's therapist. Side note, that kind of is how he's gotten a lot of this press. And also he's done a lot of good work around couples therapy. But he's come out with a new book. And I have this little um, hack slash um, I need to come clean and say a lot of times when these uh, self-help books come out, I don't actually read the self-help book. I just listen to all of the media that is (laughs) done around the book. He's been on like three... Yeah, he's been on like three or four podcasts. He's been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Post. And I feel like I've read enough of the articles where I'm like, oh, I get the book. And I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, feel, I, I completely feel that way about self-help. I, I'm not someone I, – I like I like the idea of helping oneself. I just am not going to invest that much time into it. I feel the same way. And also when you start to read – the self-help books, I get to like page 20 and I'm like, okay, I can't do this. Give me the cliff notes. Yeah. So I also feel like it becomes repetitive. Like they're kind of saying the same thing. You're like, I just need the abbreviated version. Okay. So let me give you the abbreviated version. Perfect. (laughs) We will link to the book. If you are a big reader, please be my guest, support Terrence Real and his work. But his big um, thesis is going away from individuality into coupledom and recognizing that this couple relationship is not going to be perfect and it's not supposed to be perfect. But if we can continue to choose each other as opposed to be against each other, you have the best hope for survival. So when there is a fight, it's not you against them. It's both of you against the outside problem and basically Mm -hmm. thinking of partnership as what you're choosing as opposed to your individual needs or your individual wants is, okay, how can I work within this partnership? That's not to say that you won't have and continue to fulfill certain needs, but it still is putting the partnership first. And yeah, it kind of, as someone who struggles with partnership (laughs) and (laughs) not getting my way, (laughs) it was a nice reminder to, you know, relax into this idea that it will not always be perfect. I think that's great. And I don't know how you are, but I'm very much like, I can be a bit fiery (laughs) with my partner. Mm -hmm. And so I will be more like selfish and independently minded and kind of lash out or something. And then I like calm down and remove myself from a situation. And I have to go back into it and be like, all right, fine. I realize the error of my ways. (laughs) God, I do the weirdest small things. Like I recently bought a candle for the house and it had an option to do an inscription and I just inscribed it Veronica. (laughs) (laughs) And I live with my boyfriend and this like candle showed up and he got, he gets it and he's like, just (laughs) your name. (laughs) And the fact that it was your name, like you didn't even think of like, I don't a phrase <laughs> just Veronica <laughs> just you know, remind him hello I exist <laughs> oh god anyway we will link to the book if anybody wants more on that something else that you actually point in my direction and I find interesting fascinating a quagmire of things is Hannah Gadsby and Pablo Picasso they've met in Brooklyn by way of Pablo-matic. Picasso, according to Hannah Gadsby. Um, If you haven't listened to episode one, you should. And in episode one, I talk about how Pablo Pablo Picasso and my feelings around him is a contradiction I hold in the sense of I love his art, but I also recognize him as a man is not perfect. 
Hannah Gadsby is an Australian comedian that came to fame through her stand-up special on Netflix called Nanette. Uh, And in Nanette, she tears down Pablo Picasso and is also an art history graduate. So she has some background, some knowledge into why that, why she has issues with him. And on the 50th anniversary of his death, the Brooklyn Museum reached out to her and they have done this. She has curated this exhibit for them and it has gotten scathing reviews by multiple art critics. But then when you kind of look into how they treated Pablo Picasso, you're like, oh, okay. It's one thing to like question how we hold Pablo Picasso up in the art world. And then it's another thing to simply say he's a bad guy who made good art, which is one of the captions that she's written on these paintings. Which is so, it, that's not actually helpful. Like yeah. that, that's, that doesn't further a conversation along. Yeah, I, I have a lot of feelings about this as well, the more I've read about it. And it's it's very multi-layered in how kind of messed up it is. Yeah, and it's one of those things that could have been hit out of the park, I think, if done well. And I should make a note, because I do think I'm saying this wrong, Hannah Gatsby is non-binary, so goes by they. If I misstep, I apologize. Um, but they also apparently haven't really uphold the female artists that are shown alongside Pablo Picasso and are supposedly the backbone to this entire thesis of this curation. So there's also this misstep in how they're portraying female artists. And then even further, I didn't know this about the Brooklyn Museum, but they have an entire wing named the Elizabeth A. Sackler Sackler Center for Feminist Art, and the Sacklers being the opioid crisis Sacklers, those guys that have just like, they just, I think, spent $6 billion to like sidestep any legal ramifications for what they did to the opioid crisis in America that has killed, are we into the millions? Thousands? Has damaged millions of lives, I think you could say, by way of addiction. I think millions, yeah, for sure. Um, But yeah, and... She was asked for a quote, they, sorry, they were asked for a quote around what, why are you, you know, participating with this museum that has the Sackler wing? And they said, I don't know how to go about it. It's tricky. And there's also this idea that apparently the museum is claiming that the Sackler money from that wing is completely separate from any opioid money. Oh, like. also think I yeah the more I've read about this whole thing the more I'm like man this is just this is this is not okay for a lot of reasons one I actually think well Hannah Gadsby might be a brilliant comedian they have an undergraduate degree in art history and you think of all the people out there who have PhDs in art history who would kill to curate a show like this for the Brooklyn Museum and probably do it really well because they're an expert in the field. Like, this is what irks me so much is that get an expert in there. If an expert, if an expert missteps, at least, I don't know. I I don't know that they would on such a massive level because they're going to want to give you all this context and everything that you need to pull a show like this off. I, I also think Oh, they they missed an opportunity to showcase people, artists who actually worked with, female artists who worked with Picasso. There were a number of them. And I think it could have actually been really cool to see their work sat next to his instead of kind of a random assortment of just other women. And whose work, it sounds like they didn't even really fully understand the way it would be shown in this show. And yeah, it's just, again, it's like a multi-layering of problematic things, but it sounds like at the end of the day, all they were interested in was getting publicity and that's what they're getting. So yeah, that's true. I thought there was this one line in the, uh, the New York times did like a scathing review that kind of like, you know, garnered a lot of Twitter and IG hits. And I did love this one line that the author said, he said, these are artists who put ideas and images into productive tension with no reassurance of closure or comfort. And that just really rang true for me as to why I respect 
the truth of an artist when done well and done right, because they are risking everything with no closure or comfort. Mm, yeah, that's that's a great ending. I'm not going to say anything else. I can't follow that. <laughs> All right. My third thing. So... I don't know if you feel this way, but you know when you like read a recipe and there's like 27 ingredients to buy and you're like, come on. No, I, I'm, I'm, I, you lost me at read a recipe, Veronica. <laughs> uh, so I always am like, God damn it, 27 ingredients. I'm not going to make this recipe. But I have since the pandemic been a pretty avid home chef and gotten to the point where I, I recently told my boyfriend, I was like, I just want a cookbook that like, tells me the three vague things I need for a frittata. Like you need a vegetable, you need a cheese, and you need an egg. For a stew, you need like fish sauce and water and a protein and vegetables. And like, you're good. And he's like, yeah, that exists. (laughs) And obviously I thought I was like reinventing the entire culinary (laughs) wheel of how to like write cookbooks. Nothing worse than you think you've really struck gold and then you go online and you're like, ah, oh, this somebody already came up with this 10 times. <laughs> in Totally. In my head, I'm like trekking across Antarctic, like going where no woman's gone before. And then I get there and there's like a full on tea party and I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> anyway, it's called the Flavor Bible. I will link out to it if anybody is also culinary inclined. And it is basically a wheel of flavors. And by that, I mean, you look up a certain ingredient and it explains to you exactly what would pair well, what's a fun pairing, what's a different pairing, and kind of like gives you ideas about crafting your own recipes as to, as opposed to a specific recipe. And apparently it's like the go-to for chefs and other like cocktail mixologists in New York when they have to come up with their own programs for cocktails or for menus they use this book a lot to kind of inspire them because again it's more of like how to navigate and explore flavors and that sounds perfect if you are someone who just like who wants to go to the farmer's market and just kind of pick up what's in season and totally it's kind of that in between where you're like oh the training wheels are coming off and I kind of want to bike on my own but I still Mm. want like somebody's like guiding hand. I want the hand of God to kind of still be behind me for a while, like pushing me down the hill. So yeah, I'm, I'm at that point. My, my chef's training wheels are off. Um, but I still need some reassurance that I'm not gonna, you know, scrape a knee because I do not do well with blood. (laughs) Well, you'll have to let us know how it, how it all pans out. (laughs) Pun intended. And we're back. Number one and number two. (laughs) Women number one and number two. This week, we're going to be talking about bodies and how we feel both good and bad in our bodies and what leads to us feeling good and bad. And so this is your fair warning that if body talk is not your thing, feel free to skip. But if you, like us, are unpacking a lot of the body image download you might have done through the Kate Moss 90s era... (laughs) Please join in. The the jazzercise moms of the 80s. Yes. All of those good things. Come along for the ride. We're kicking off this conversation with this thing that happened in the zeitgeist last September, October is when I saw it. It might have been around before then, but it's when it came across my desk And it's this thing called an almond mom. And it went quote unquote viral, although I would love to know what viral really means these days. (laughs) But I think this literally did go viral. It got picked up by media outlets, yada, yada, yada. I will caveat this when someone's like, oh my God, I went viral. And I'm like, you have 1000 views. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something you would hear more in New York than you would hear in other parts of the country. Maybe Los Angeles, maybe LA and New York. Yeah, it's definitely an overheard New York, overheard LA um, Instagram moment. Anyway, I digress. So this went actual viral, uh, and it was a TikTok that 
compiled a bunch of clips of Yolanda Hadid during the time she was on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills speaking to her daughter, Gigi Hadid. Gigi Hadid was just becoming a model at that time. She was still in high school. And throughout these clips, back to back to back, you see Yolanda calling Gigi's body big and bulky um, and complains that she, quote unquote, eats like a man. And then during an episode of Gigi's birthday, she tells the teenager that she can only have one night of being bad and then has to get back on her diet. And then she allows Gigi a single bite of cake. Uh, And then the most like the pinnacle scene or the scene that this all leads up to is when Gigi calls her mom. It's I think she might be on a model shoot. It's a little unclear, but she says that she's feeling really weak and she's only had like half an almond that day was her exact quote. And Gigi or Yolanda's response was have a couple almonds and chew them really well. So that is when Yolanda Hadid got dubbed an almond mom. And she responded to this by posting a photo of herself in various locations with almonds, a bowl of almonds on her head, which I both enjoyed that she responded to it and also was not quite sure if this was the most productive way of responding to it. (laughs) Right. But it made me stop in my tracks for a while and really start to think about what have I internalized from my childhood in Hollywood surrounded by women and my mom and other maternal figures in my life that grew up in the 80s jazzercise era, which was the first time where health and skinniness merged in a very unhealthy way, i.e. wellness became kind of, you were able to hide a lot of things under this, oh, I'm being fit, I'm being well, Um, especially Mm -hmm. because I was growing up in Southern California, like the birthplace of orthorexia, which is this idea that you have a unhealthy focus on eating in a healthy way. Mm. I definitely realized that the amount that food was talked about was probably in my childhood and into my like teenage years was probably not the healthiest. And it then this culminated in, I had to like choose a, an outfit to wear to my father's memorial, which is not, not nothing you ever think of doing in the first place. But when it's like, when you're confronted with it, the first thing I thought of was, oh, I have to figure out what I'm going to wear. And then followed with, well, I want to look skinny. (laughs) Which, mind you, after your dad dies, you do get skinny, but that's a whole other conversation (laughs) for other reasons that you don't intend to get skinny before. But I just realized how pernicious the pressure of a certain thin form had been placed on me for a while now and I hadn't even fully recognized it and I swear I'll let you chime in but I'm just going to finish my my opening my opening monologue with I then kind of started doing some research around the almond mom trend and links and everything and I stumbled upon Dr. Deborah Gilboa who's a parenting and youth development expert and I just loved how she put it which was There is still a belief that our body shape is a reflection of our character, of our strength, of will and our motivation to be healthy, which I was like, that's it. Like that is what I definitely was taught and am trying to unlearn that my character is not tied to how I look. Yeah. And I think too, it's that idea of like, oh, you don't have willpower. You know, I definitely feel like that was the narrative in my family. Like, oh, if you are eating a lot or if you're, you know, let's say overweight, you don't have willpower. And so I downloaded that on myself. And and now, like you, <laughs> I'm backing it all. Yeah, it's definitely this thing that you have to consistently fight against. And I can't decide. I feel like there's a lot of conversations right now around anorexia and eating disorders, but the conversations are ones that 
aren't don't, they don't really live in the gray. I feel like we have these conversations where it's like, oh, she was diagnosed, she had a problem, and then there's the other conversations where someone's like, oh, I can't talk about it anymore. Like they just avoid it at all costs, and like I haven't found a place to have an honest conversation around the fact that like, I know I think about my body too much. I know I work out for both the wrong and the right reasons. I work Mm. out for vanity and I work out because I like to just feel strong and have a certain resting heart rate. And it still is something that I don't know if we figured out how to talk about our bodies, because I don't know if not talking about our bodies is the right answer. And Maybe it is. And I just haven't been convinced of that yet. Yeah, I think for our generation, I think it's healthy for us to do what we're doing right now, where we're kind of saying out loud, I don't know that I have the healthiest relationship with my body, with the way I eat, whatever. Now, raising two young girls, I do find just not talking about bodies is maybe the way to go with them. Mm. So it's not as much of a thing because I think a huge part of my own personal issues come from the fact that my mom talked about her own body in a negative way all the time and still does. She'll show up at my house. Sorry, mom. I'll leave you out here, but she'll show up at my house and be like, I I gained five pounds. I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, what? No one one can notice anything. What are you talking about? You're like 60 years old. Like you should be over this, you know? And she's not, and she's dealing with issues from, you know, her own mother and her generation and everything. But my mom was always calling out her quote unquote saddlebags. Well, I also have hips that go out on the side. And sure enough, what is it that I really don't like on my own body are my quote unquote saddlebags. And so I just find with my own girls, even when I'm having those negative thoughts, I do not say them aloud. I say nothing about my body unless it's in a positive way. And on their own bodies, I don't say anything unless it's in a positive positive way. And I find I have to stop myself when, like, you know, kids will have this thing where, where, you know, they'll be a little bit more compact, let's say, (laughs) and then they'll have a growth spurt and they, they stretch out. And I found myself wanting to say to my daughters when this has happened, like, oh, like you're a string bean, like, you know, where'd your, where'd your little baby chunkies go. And I I just, I don't say anything because Mm. I don't know how they're taking that. And I don't want them to, I just don't want it to be a thing. And so the only time we talk about our bodies is like how they can be strong or how they can be fast or how we can nourish our bodies so that we have energy and things like that. And it's never, the emphasis is never on how they look. It's yeah. only what your body can do for you. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I think my comment around this like yearning to talk about our bodies but not talk about them in that negative way, definitely it's like a, an appreciation for the body. I I wish I could remember exactly what religion or spiritual denomination this was, but I heard recently this idea that this belief that when you die, your soul yearns for your body And I just loved this idea of like what a beautiful marriage and what a beautiful symbiotic relationship that your body can express emotions like such as laughter, such as grief is physically expressed dying from a broken heart. Like there is this intertwined braided system between the two, at least I believe uh, that when I did try to simply ignore my body, it got worse. (laughs) Like, I feel like my body yelled more at me where it's like, no, you need to pay attention to me. And I think specifically I, I ignored my body by drinking more, which is a whole other episode we'll go into (laughs) because by ignoring my body, I was also ignoring my emotions. Like I thought my emotions just lived in my head so much. And then Mm -hmm. I started to realize, Oh no, your emotions live in your body as well. And I don't want to feel my emotions. So I'm going to drink. (laughs) And then my body started yelling at me in so many ways because of that. But I didn't speak this out loud because I am 
a naturally thin person and I have thin privilege and I've always had thin privilege and I've always moved through the world in that way. And I realized that it was, it was, it was, it was just a, a snarly place to walk through when you're like, I also want to talk about this, but want to talk about it where I think about food too much. I plan my meals too much. I think about how I look in clothes and how that represents me too much. And I've sucked in my stomach for the majority of my life. And I would just like to admit that out loud to somebody and, Mm -hmm. you know, just have a place to be like, oh, yes. Why are we all sucking in our stomachs for the like, we're not properly breathing. And apparently if you're if you once you start properly breathing, apparently your entire bodily system works better to begin with. (laughs) Well, I think it's like the the yeah. I mean, it, it all makes sense because then you're, you're allowing oxygen to radiate into your being, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, it's one of those things that are really complicated. And I, too, am a thin thin person with just a petite frame in general. Like, my bone structure is smaller. and But I still, you know, I've fluctuated in my weight over the years. And I've had to more recently really kind of grapple with this idea of like, am I, am I doing this for my health? Because going back to the idea of like what we can easily hide things behind wellness now, or am I doing this because I, you know, kind of maybe grew up with an almond mom, although I, I will say she was not as extreme as, as Gigi's mom, but also I think I grew up really, I've always been super into fashion and used to steal my aunt's vogues. And especially in the nineties, like to me, if you wanted to look good in clothes, in fashion, you needed to be a hang, like you need to be a rail and up and down. And I hate, and it, it wasn't really until the last few years where I do think there's been a little bit more embrace of curves, although that's potentially back on a pendulum and who knows? But um, that I finally started to be like, okay, like my <laughs> my rounder bottom <laughs> is is I, I don't mind it as much. Like, a butt. <laughs> <laughs> Every everyone I know from my hometown somehow has an ass. It's it's in the water there. So <laughs> delightful. But I think we uh yeah, I and I, I used to freaking I used to hate it. Like I used to really dislike it and dressed very specifically to hide that I had an ass. And it wasn't until recently that I started feeling much more okay in my body. I think some of that comes with age. Mm -hmm. And, but I also think some of it comes with, we do see different bodies now in, you know, I I think Edward Enninful at British Vogue deserves so much credit for everything he's doing there to showcase a wide range of bodies and so much more. But you start when you see that imagery and that's something that gives me some hope for my kids is like, if this is what you're seeing instead of the Kate Mosses who we saw walking down the runway, like that has to mean something to them. Right. And so I, I hope that it will be better for them, but I do think women of our age and maybe, you know, older and then a bit younger, I do think we need to have this space to have real honest conversations about how we feel in our body without hopefully offending and just allowing, allowing the contradictions and the The discourse to continue. You know, what's so ironic too is like, and I also think with age came like more honest conversations with men around my body. Like I feel mm. like in my 20s, I just hoped they liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was definitely those honest. And I actually remember specifically once in my 20s, I was bitching in which now I look back on it, I was like, I should have been parading around in a goddamn skimpy ass two piece the entire time in my 20s, as opposed to these like loose right. band t-shirts I insisted on wearing. Um, but I remember once me and my like, uh, 
fellow waitress were bitching about something ridiculous about our bodies that bodies that we shouldn't have been bitching about and this old bar back heard us and like begged us to stop because he was like you're you're a woman you're supposed to be soft and like i i don't know how else to tell you this but like that is what your body should look like and is what is attractive for a man. And he did it in this way. I mean, he was like, he was just like the grandfather of the restaurant and was so kind in his way of like overhearing this conversation so much so that it clearly stuck in my mind. And then fast forward like 10 years later in my mid thirties, I was dating a guy a few years ago and he was like obsessed with my lower abdomen, which is my least favorite part on my body. <laughs> and it was one of those things where I realized, and he explained it. He was like, yeah, no, I don't look like this there. And it's nice that you don't look like I look like in my lower abdomen. He's like, that is what is it. The, the other is attractive to me, much like you like me for being the other, the opposite of you. There is mm-hmm. a yin and yang. And that also goes to my point, which I also I, I have found so disheartening in some ways, is that I do find women of our age, and I should say our age is like late 30s, are we were striving to for a very masculine body. <laughs> like mm. we were striving for a very straight mm. and narrow and muscular and not even necessarily muscular, just straight and narrow. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it was like the opposite of anything that one would naturally attribute to being feminine. Obviously there are also f- females out there that are just naturally straight and narrow and they're beautiful in that feminine form. But mm-hmm. I'm saying for like the broad, the broad, broadly speaking. I think what I think what's interesting in in something you were saying though and this is where it can be this is where our own thoughts I think can become conflated is like you are still looking for reassurance from a man right mm. to tell you the ways in which your body was attractive totally. you know and and we are two heterosexual women and I know that within especially the gay male community, there's really big issues with eating disorders and body dysmorphia and stuff like that. I am not certain, but I don't feel like it's as much within the lesbian community, but please let me know if that's true or not. But I I do think there's still a part of us and maybe maybe it's you and I specifically. I don't know if it's it's beyond, you know, this is a conversation that we can continue having online, but where we're still looking for outside validation. And whether that's from the opposite sex, because that's who we're attracted to. Sometimes I think it's sometimes I think for me it's actually more from the same sex. Like I I'm weirdly appreciate like other women like same with fashion like when other women call if a man comments on my clothes I'm like okay unless he's a gay man Uh, but if it's a woman I'm often that feels better to me in a weird way or maybe not weird but in in a way that I think is interesting because I again I am heterosexual but I it's still like it's still outside validation and so I feel like I'm trying to find a way to be content and happy and at peace with my body without any outside validation. I'm I'm not there yet, but I'm, that's what I'm sure. But we're striving. God that's damn what it. I'm we're driving, working striving towards it. <laughs> no, totally. It also, I also think specifically as being women, it's interesting if you choose to have children and, and be pregnant, you are sacrificing your body in some way or another. And watching so many of my girlfriends go through that and also then having that conversation of like, oh, my body can do this other miraculous thing (laughs) that I didn't even know it was capable of. And now I have so much more appreciation for it, even though it has like changed in a way that I like couldn't have anticipated or expected. Like it was my body was somebody else's body for a while. (laughs) Right. And I think I've told you this before, but I realized something that was, I was like, oh, this is a weird, not okay thought. But when I was pregnant for the first time and it was that it was the first time in my life, I did not worry about what my lower abdomen looks like in clothes. If I would, if like, I was like, okay, yeah, this is great. Like, let's just expand. And you have no control my bum got much bigger and I, there's just nothing you can do about your you can do all the exercise. And like, I do think some women have 
like you, in the beginning, they might be able to keep exercising and stay fit, but at some point it just takes over and you have no control over what's happening. And then you have the baby, weird, weird things happen to your body. You feel like your insides are all shaken up, but we can have that conversations later. And then there's just such, I put enormous pressure on myself to get back to a smaller size in part because my mother was like, I walked out of the hospital in my size 25 Levi 501s. And I was like, well, good for you. First of all, you got to stay for a week because this was in 1983. And second, you were like 22 years old. So, you know, we're not in the same category here. But I still had, I had her in my head and I... I was definitely a little bit obsessive with my first and my second, although it was much harder for me with my second to get back to in shape, get back to normal, whatever. And I, I think I missed, I don't know. I, I feel like I almost wasn't as happy as I should have been because I was so consumed with my body Mm -hmm. and it, it makes me really sad, like for me. And that's, I, I just, I would love to get to a place where I'm not thinking about it all the time, food, exercise, whatever. But I also have no idea how to get there. (laughs) I know. I was thinking about this as we're both writers. And so I think you'll understand this connection. Like, I don't know. I haven't been writing that much recently and it's been bothering me. And it definitely is something my like, Damon turns into my demon. I don't know if you know that like reference, but this idea that like if you have a creative pursuit and you don't pursue it, it will like demonize you from the inside out. And it definitely mm-hmm. is something that happens to me. And I was thinking, I was like, wow, what is it like for people who just like have a day without any guilt? <laughs> like, every day I wake up with guilt if I haven't written. And then there's like, I have gotten a lot better around what I eat and if I work out or don't work out in a day. So that guilt is on the diminishing side, mainly also because I've been talking about it a lot more. I wrote I wrote about the lower abdomen thing in a piece a couple, I want to say like two years ago now. And the amount of women that reached out to me, mind you, like by amount of women, I, I don't have a following, but I was still <laughs> impressed. The women that did reach out to me, I had had I hadn't spoken to them in years. And they were like, oh my God, you I also suck in my lower abdomen all all day long. And I have in debt. I have indigestion issues because of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not allowed. And it's a, it's apparently a correlation that if we sit all day sucking in our abdomens or wearing jeans that are too tight because we want to look a certain way, our internal organs cannot process our food properly, <laughs> which only leads to something we don't want, which is bloating. <laughs> God, that is so messed up. Yeah. I. It is interesting. I do feel like you and I have been having a lot more discussions about this and then I in turn have been having them more with just my network of friends. And it is, it is crazy how just talking about it does start to help. I feel like I'm already in the last six months feeling less uh, obsessive. I don't, I don't know if I was obsessive, but it, it took up a fair amount of brain space. And I do feel like it's taking up less brain space. And I think I'm just getting to a place where I'm I'm just appreciate as I'm getting older, I'm appreciating that I can walk and I can move and how much when I exercise, it's less about how I look and more about what it gives me. When I can lift things and I feel strong, or when I can run down the road after my child and not get out of breath, it's things like that or just the, you know. I live in Seattle and it's very dark and <laughs> dreary here for a good five to six months out of the year. And when I'm exercising, I get those endorphins that I'm, I'm not getting. And so that makes a huge impact. So trying more to focus on that and less about the, the physical appearance is helping in some way. I mean, I still have a long way to go, but totally. <laughs> I'm making strides. <laughs> I'm my strides are I'm trying not to apologize for my appearance. I feel mm. like this is a meme or I don't know if you call them memes these days, but it went it, it went it made the, it made the rounds on the internet. This idea that uh, doctors and podiatrists and trainers all chimed in this idea that 
when a woman has to show a part of her body, she apologizes. Like she apologizes. She didn't get a pedicure. She apologizes. She didn't get the bikini oh, wax. God. She apologizes what size her body is coming into the gym. Like she oh, is God, apologizing so for existing in some way. And all these, like all these other people who have to work, who, whose job is to interface with human bodies all day are like, a man never apologizes <laughs> for That anything. is so true. The <laughs> amount of times I have like gone to the OBGYN or something like that. I'm like, I am so sorry. I did not, you know, things are, and they're like, I look at vaginas all day. You think I fucking care? <laughs> like, you know, I used to do the same thing. So I always apologize. So my one is like not apologizing. And then the other thing that I'm trying to do is like, it's just to not, to not comment on other people's bodies. Not that I was like commenting, oh my God, you look bad. But I definitely would say to some people sometimes when I saw them, like, oh, you look so good. And now I try mm-hmm. to avoid, because I don't know how they feel. And I don't yeah. want to reinforce something that they might not like, they might be dealing with something physically that I have no idea about. So Completely. I will comment on what, if there's something I like that they're wearing or like a haircut or something, but I no longer am like, you look so good, which is something I used mm-hmm. to say to people, re- regardless of what their weight status was, if I just thought they had a glow within them. And I'm trying to just avoid commenting on looks in general, because who knows like what could be on the other side of that comment. Yeah, that is so true. And I and I think that's it's I think that's the best thing we can do for the younger generation. It's just be kinder to ourselves. And I think that they will pick up on that. And it's something that will hopefully not be they that they're gonna have a lot of things to deal with. So hopefully this is not one of them. <laughs> uh but I also would be so interested if we do if someone of the younger generation, we are both millennials, but I would love to know a take on this from a younger generation and how they either feel like they what they thought of body image growing up and what they think of body image now. Yeah. Well. We'll save that for another episode <laughs> next season. <laughs> uh, well, let's just all hope the millennials in the room never have to like hear Kate, Kate Moss's mantra ever again. And I'm not even going to repeat it here. We're not even going to say it here. We're just going to end on the high note that we hope you feel good no matter what. Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at womenofcontradictions.com. Or drop us a note at hello at womenofcontradictions.com. Till next time. Ciao.